Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Um, Dr. Bill is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of Children's Programs for the Center for the Partially Sighted. Tonight, our topic is um, optic nerve hypoplasia, and we're, look, we're fortunate to have Dr. Bill give us some insights and an overview of optic nerve hypoplasia. Thank you very much. Hi. Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, thank you very, very much for attending. Uh, this is really a very, very large group that we have from across the country, and as of this moment, we're still waiting for Dr. Mark Borchert to call in. So this evening, we're going to be talking about optic nerve hypoplasia, and optic nerve hypoplasia is truly one of the most important causes of vision impairment that we do see among children today. When I started practicing in the field of low vision in 1988, it was very, very infrequent. Very rarely did we ever have a child who had this condition called optic nerve hypoplasia. But shortly after, we would see more and more children who are visually impaired due to optic nerve hypoplasia. And today, Optic nerve hypoplasia is the fastest growing cause of vision impairment among children. So what we're seeing is that there are greater and greater and greater numbers of children who are visually impaired due to this condition, and it is something that we find that the vision that a child may have, it's a very, very random, it's a very large range of vision that the child may have. For example, we see some children with optic nerve hypoplasia who are totally blind, and we also see other children who have optic nerve hypoplasia, and their vision might be actually quite good. Their vision may be as good as 20-25, meaning that they could read next to the smallest line of letters on the eye chart. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is what is optic nerve hypoplasia? The first thing to understand is that the optic nerve is a accumulation. It's an accumulation of millions of fibers that connect the eye to the very back part of the brain, which is called the occipital lobe of the brain. So when a person is going to look at something, one will move their eyes to focus on an object, and that object that they're looking at it will then send light rays that come into the eye and it focuses them on the retina. Now the retina then has millions of cells that each have a fiber connected to it and those fibers all accumulate together to create the optic nerve. The optic nerve then travels from the eye and it passes through the brain and it will then make that final connection at the very back of the head, which is called the occipital lobe of the brain. Now, when a child has optic nerve hypoplasia, we find that the size of the optic nerve is smaller than normal. So what this means is that that child who does have optic nerve hypoplasia, they may be missing many, many of these nerves and as a result, the information from the eyes, it does not reach the brain normally. Now, in the optic nerve, we know that the fibers that are in the optic nerve, they are very, very highly organized. So what I mean by that 
is that the fibers that are in the center of the optic nerve, that receives information from the center of the retina, a region of the eye that is called the macula. The macula is the part of the retina that gives us our detailed 20-20 types of detailed clear vision. So those fibers from the center of the retina or the macula, it travels down the center of the optic nerve and then it connects to the very center of the occipital lobe of the back part of the brain. If some of those fibers in the center of the optic nerve did not develop normally or if they are missing, that person may not have central vision. As a result, a child who is missing some of those optic nerve fibers from the center of the optic nerve, they may have a big blind spot in the center of their vision. So when these children, they look at the faces of their mother or father, they often will not look straight at the center of their mother or father's face because when they look in the center, there's a blob or there's a blind spot. So these kids may sometimes turn their eyes and they may look slightly to the right or to the left or they might appear as though they're looking at your forehead. When they're doing this, they're actually using their vision so they could look at your face. In other cases of optic nerve hypoplasia, it may be that some of the fibers on the outer edges of the optic nerve are missing. And in these cases, a child might be missing some of the peripheral vision on the right side, or it might be the peripheral vision on the left side, or it could be the peripheral vision on the upper or the lower fields of gaze. So depending on which areas of the optic nerve that the fibers did not develop, that is going to determine what part of the child's vision is reduced. It is possible that a child might have reduced central vision or the child could have reduced peripheral vision, or it could be a combination. And again, in some cases, it may be that the child does not have any vision whatsoever. Now, some of the things that we were hoping that we could get the latest information from Dr. Borchert this evening is what is the latest in research in understanding why is it that these nerve fibers did not develop? At this point in time, I do not know that there is a definitive answer as to why these nerves did not develop and connect the eye to the brain. Now, with the latest research that Dr. Borchert may know, there might be an answer, but based on what I've known so far is that we do not know the precise cause of optic nerve hypoplasia. I remember once, I had a family that they had a young child who had optic nerve hypoplasia, and the mother was really, really very, very depressed. You know, it's understandable that when one has a child that the parents may feel very, very depressed. But this was a little different case because in this situation, the mother felt that it was her fault. She thought that there was something that she did wrong that caused her child to have optic nerve hypoplasia. She said, you know, maybe I didn't take my prenatal vitamins one day. Or maybe, you know, I had a cup of wine when I was first pregnant and I didn't know that I was pregnant 
and I drank a cup of wine at dinner, and maybe that is what caused it. Or maybe it's because I was with some friends, and my friends were smokers, and I was inhaling all of this type of smoke. So she felt very, very guilty about her child having optic nerve hypoplasia. But then I explained to her about the study that Dr. Borchert was performing for so many years. And I explained to her that in the study that Dr. Borchert and other teams of his researchers performed, they have not been able to find a specific cause of optic nerve hypoplasia. It is not something that is genetic in nature, meaning that it is not something where a parent may have optic nerve hypoplasia and then his or her child will have that condition as well. It is also something that is not due to the fact that a mother has done something wrong. For example, it is not because one has forgotten to take a prenatal vitamin. It is not because the mother is a smoker. And it is not because a mother may have had a drink early on in the pregnancy where she did not know about her pregnancy at that time. But Dr. Borchardt's study has found a lot of very, very interesting correlations. And these correlations give us some insight regarding optic nerve hypoplasia. Some of the things that his studies have correlated are, number one, it is more common that a younger mother will have a child with optic nerve hypoplasia as compared to an older mother. So it's very common that we see mothers who are 16, 17 years old, and they may have a child who has optic nerve hypoplasia. Number two, mothers that have experienced gestational diabetes are also more often going to have a child with optic nerve hypoplasia. We see many times that mothers, when they're pregnant, that their blood sugar increases and they are diagnosed with diabetes that is related to that type of a pregnancy. So this is something that, again, when a person does have diabetes during pregnancy, they may be slightly at a greater risk of having a child with optic nerve hypoplasia. Number three, it's also a bit more common that in some environmental situations, for example, when they study where are these mothers when they're pregnant that do have the child with optic nerve hypoplasia, where do they live? And there do seem to be some indicators that may suggest that optic nerve hypoplasia is related to some environmental factors. So overall, at this time, it seems as though there seems to be the greatest link related to the environmental factors. There is a link that makes it a bit more common among younger mothers and mothers who have had gestational diabetes. But it's also very important to remember, and I want to emphasize, that these are just correlations. These are correlations. It does not mean that it's the cause, but at this time, these are the correlations. So when we think about correlations, we see these are things that are associated with it. For example, I remember once hearing a joke, and it was about a researcher who was trying to find out why these people were dying. He studied about this person who went to a bar, and this person had vodka on the rocks. 
and he had two drinks, and then he had a heart attack and died. Then another person at that same bar had scotch on the rocks, and he had two drinks, and then he left that bar, and he died of a heart attack. And then the third person had bourbon on the rocks and had two drinks, and then he left the bar, and he also died. So the reacher then said, well, the reason that these three people probably died, it must have been the ice. All three of them had ice with their drinks. So that is somewhat of an absurd type of statement, but you could understand how sometimes people may make the wrong assumption, meaning that this correlation is the cause. Obviously, the ice cubes did not cause these three people to drink. It was the factor of the alcohol that was inside the drinks that caused them to die. Okay? So in optic nerve hypoplasia, Dr. Borchard's study has made some very important correlation factors, but we cannot say that this is something that is causative. So at this present time, we want mothers and fathers to understand, it's very important to understand that it is nothing that you as a mother or father have done wrong, but we just know that for some reason that may appear to be environmental in nature, that the child has developed optic nerve hypoplasia. Hopefully, we can find out from Dr. Borchert what are some of the latest studies and perhaps we can learn more about what environmental factors might it be. Could it be something with the air? Could it be with pollution? Could it be something to do with foods and nutrition that might be affecting this? Now, now that we know what optic nerve hypoplasia is, we also want to describe the definitions that are used with optic nerve hypoplasia. Some people will often refer to optic nerve hypoplasia as septo-optic dysplasia, and that is S-E-P-T-O, optic, O-P-T-I-C, dysplasia. And this is a situation in which a child will have underdeveloped optic nerves, in addition, they will also have the absence of the septum pellucidum, which is a structure that is within the skull and the brain. Now, one of the things in terms of talking with Dr. Borchert about this is that he does not truly make a differentiation between a child who has optic nerve hypoplasia and a child who has septo-optic dysplasia. In other words, he finds that their visual function will be very, very similar. We cannot say that the child who has septo-optic dysplasia has either better or worse vision as compared to the child who only has optic nerve hypoplasia. So in that regard, when we think of a child, let's say that you're a teacher for the visually impaired and you're working with a child who has septo-optic dysplasia, you could think of the fact that you're just basically working with a child with optic nerve hypoplasia, and I think that is something that really simplifies matters quite a bit. Now, when a child has the optic nerve hypoplasia, I previously talked about how it may affect their central vision, and if it does affect their central vision, that usually causes the following problems. Number one, they may have reduced clarity of sight when they look far as well as when they look near. 
Generally speaking, though, the child who has optic nerve hypoplasia will have better near vision as compared to distance vision. For example, let's say that the child's visual acuity measures 20 over 400 when they're looking at the distance eye chart. Well, you cannot assume that the child's vision when he or she is looking at a book or something close would be equally poor. And the reason for this is that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia, they respond very well to magnification. And by bringing things closer, two things happen. Number one, when they get closer to the things they look at, the image becomes bigger, so it's easier for them to see. And number two, when they're closer to the object, the brightness of what they're looking at or the contrast will also improve. So as a result, I have worked with many children whose distance vision due to optic nerve hypoplasia is 20 over 400, but these kids are actually able to read large print books when they bring the book within six to eight inches from their eyes. Number two, if it affects the central vision, we often know that they are gonna have blind spots right in their central vision. So when they look at a word, parts of the word will be missing, and as a result, these kids will often eccentric view. Now, eccentric view is a term that we as doctors use when a person is purposely not looking directly at the target of interest. Because they have a blind spot right in the center, they may move their eyes and look to the left or to the right of what they're trying to read, or they might look above or below. So if you have a child who does this behavior, you want to allow your child to continue this behavior because this is how the child is compensating. As teachers for the visually impaired, this is a good way that you can help children who have these blind spots in the central vision is by teaching them how to find the best location of where to look when they're trying to read. A good way of doing something like this is that you could use something such as a set of playing cards. Maybe you're playing goldfish or old maid or whatever it is that you're doing. But you may then ask the child to look at your hand when your hand is slightly above the card and find out if the child could see the card easier if he or she looks above or below the card or to the right or to the left of the card and then the child will find the best place. Later, as the child is starting to read letters, you could do the same activity and find out if the child could see and identify the letter better if he or she looks above or below or to the right or to the left of the target. Another problem that they may have is going to be with color vision. It's very common that if the central optic nerve has been damaged, it can affect the child's color vision. Now, generally speaking, children who have color vision problems are not such that they cannot see certain colors. What I mean by that is many people think that if a child has a color vision problem, let's say they have weakness towards where they cannot see red, if you were to draw something using a red marks a lot or red sharpie, a lot of people think that they would not be able to see that red line. And generally, those children with optic nerve hypoplasia, 
they will be able to see that line, but the line will not appear to be red. It's very similar to in the old days when I was a kid, they had black and white televisions. And when you would look at something on the black and white television, you couldn't tell if Lucille Ball was wearing a red dress or a brown dress or a green dress or a blue dress. But it was just basically a different shade of gray. You could still see the dress, but you really couldn't tell if that color of gray meant that it should be red or blue or green or orange. So the child who has a color vision deficiency usually is able to see that line or that marking. Now, there can be some cases where the color vision impairment is so severe that the child is what's called color blind. And the difference between color deficiency and color blindness is that in color blindness, that person does absolutely not see the color at all. Now, there's a few things that we do have available to help children with optic nerve hypoplasia if they have a color vision deficiency or if they are color blind. Number one, we do have tests that we can perform to determine to what extent is there the color vision problem and what shades of colors are most difficult. From there, we can use colored lenses, and with a specific colored lens, we could make it so that they can see that line. So, for example, let's say that we had a child who could not see red. They were completely blind, color blind to red, and they could not see that. Well, often we will use a green-tinted lens, and when the green-tinted lens interacts with the red marker, the light from the red marker that comes into the eyes through the green filter it will make it so that line appears to be black. So the child will actually see a black line and they will not see a red marker. We could also do that where there are now some new manufacturers of lenses where they now have new lens materials with a special coating and this particular type of coating helps the children and adults to be able to see colors more effectively. Now, the only hazard or the caution we have about this lens is that it is made out of glass. So we would only want the child to wear this type of a lens when they're in the classroom. We would not want the child to wear these glasses when they're running around because a glass lens is a bit more dangerous. There is the possibility that the lens can crack and shatter and we don't want the child to injure themselves. So that type of lens, again, is helpful for the child to use in the classroom. For older children, we also have something that is called the X-chrome lens, and that's X and then C-H-R-O-M-E. Now, this is a contact lens that is usually placed in one eye only, and by having a different visual input from the right and the left eyes, it could help children and adults with color vision problems to discriminate and see these colors more easily. Now, another thing that happens if it does affect the central optic nerve is we also see that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia are going to be very sensitive to the sunlight, and they may have more difficulties adjusting to different brightness levels. For these kids, it's very important that we're fitting them with tinted glasses, In some cases, we will use what is called a transitions lens, 
Many of you are familiar with that, but these are the lenses that will convert from a clear lens when the child is indoors or at night, and then when they go out into the sunlight, they will turn into a dark lens. So this is a very, very helpful type of a lens for children because then they don't have to switch from one pair of glasses to the next. We will sometimes use a brown lens, and the brown lens has the advantage over a gray lens in that the brown lens can make things appear to have more contrast. If a child with optic nerve hypoplasia has reduced contrast vision, meaning that they have difficulty seeing the concrete steps and stairs when they're walking, or they cannot see things that are not very, very bold or black on white. By using a brown lens or an orange lens or a yellow lens, we could improve the appearance of contrast. So for many students, when they're at school, we may recommend that they're going to wear either a amber lens or a yellow lens when inside the classroom, and this will help them to be able to see things that they're writing using pencil. When they're outdoors, we will use a lens that will convert into a brown sunglass, and this will help them so that when they're on the playground and playing around on the field, they will be able to see things with much better contrast. Mm -hmm. Now, the next area that children with optic nerve hypoplasia will have functional difficulties with is going to be with their peripheral vision. Depending on what part of the peripheral vision did not develop, it's going to have different functional implications. If the visual field loss is in the upper field of vision, this is usually going to cause the least amount of functional problems. It may affect them if they're going to try to play baseball and there's a pop fly in the air. But for walking, they usually have the peripheral vision to see the steps and the floor. They're going to have the peripheral vision on the right and left side so that they don't bump into poles and other types of obstacles. And they're also going to have that type of peripheral vision that gives them important night vision. It's very important to remember that the region of peripheral vision is also very important for providing one with night vision. Now, if a child has reduced peripheral vision in the lower visual field, they are going to have significant difficulties with their mobility. When they walk, we often find that they do not see steps and curves. Or another sign to look for is if a child stops, as soon as that they interact with a crack in the sidewalk, they may use their foot to feel the difference in the terrain. Or if they're walking on the sidewalk and there's an area where there's grass up against the sidewalk, they may stop right there because they don't really know whether or not there is a change in the elevation of the terrain. These kids really benefit very much from orientation and mobility training. I think that for myself, orientation and mobility training was the most important type of training that I received after my vision became poor. I think it really gives you a lot more confidence and a lot more freedom when you do receive that. However, it is often the most difficult to receive. I know that I really did not want to use a cane at all, and it was something that I rejected very, very much. Now, when we talk about the peripheral vision loss on the left 
or the right visual fields, it is often very, very difficult to be able to perform academic tasks when you do not have peripheral vision on the right side. The reason that it's very difficult is that when you do not have peripheral vision on the right side, when you are reading, you may only see the first letter in a word. And that makes it very difficult for the child to know how to move his or her eyes from left to right in order to be able to see that word. So there's a few things that we often will teach children to do, and this is something that I know a lot of teachers for the visually impaired will do, is that for many children, if the visual field loss is only on the peripheral vision on the right side, we will often turn the page 90 degrees clockwise. Now, when we turn the page 90 degrees clockwise, what this then means is that the letters are now going to be moving vertically from top to bottom. As a result, when the child is reading in this manner, they will be able to see the entire word, but the word is arranged vertically. So basically, if a child or an adult has reduced peripheral vision on the right side, we could rotate the page 90 degrees clockwise and teach the child how to read in this manner. The child will be able to read things much more quickly, and it would be analogous to the way that people would read Chinese, Mandarin, or Japanese, where you are moving your eyes from top to bottom. Now, another type of problem that children and adults with optic nerve hypoplasia may have is that they may have what is called nystagmus. Nystagmus is the uncontrollable shaking of the eyes. Now, in most cases with optic nerve hypoplasia, the nystagmus is such that the eyes will shake from side to side very rapidly. When this occurs, the first thing that parents and teachers should understand is that the child generally does not see the world as shaking from side to side. When the eyes are shaking that way, the brain will turn off the vision for a millisecond as the eyes are moving, and then when the eyes are position back at the straight ahead position, the brain will take a picture. So it's a real, real nice system where the person does not get sick and they do not get nauseous because the world is shaking from side to side. There are some cases where a person may have nystagmus and they do see the world shaking from side to side. And that is usually if they have developed nystagmus after an older age. Let's say that they were involved in a car accident or they fell off of their tricycle or the ball hit them in the head. That kind of a head injury at a later stage in their life, it can cause nystagmus where the child will see things shaking. But for optic nerve hypoplasia, they usually do not see things shaking. Now what we do is that we often will find that the child with optic nerve hypoplasia will have what is called a null point, N-U-L-L point. Now, the null point may be a position that the child could move his or her eyes and the nystagmus is better. Now, this is very important to know because when a child has a null point, there's a couple of treatments that we can do. Number one is that the low vision optometrist may prescribe glasses with a prism. And what this will do is it will help the child to keep their eyes positioned easier in that null point. Number two, 
There are also surgeries where doctors such as Dr. Borcher can perform surgery and they can reattach the muscles so that the null point will be at the straight-ahead position. So the nice thing about this is that when children with optic nerve hypoplasia and nystagmus, when they get older, they are often very conscious, self-conscious about the shaking of their eyes. So they really like it if we could do something so that their eyes do not shake when they're making eye contact and looking at people. Contact lenses are also another possible treatment to help people with nystagmus. A person can be fit with what's called a rigid lens, not the disposal lenses, but it has to be the rigid lenses. And for some kids, this is something that will reduce that type of nystagmus. Strabismus or a misaligned eye is also another type of problem that children with optic nerve hypoplasia will have. This is when the eyes are either crossed or one is turned outward or one is pointing higher than the other. And this is something that can often cause double vision. The first thing that we will do with a child with that type of strabismus is to determine whether or not we could eliminate the double vision with glasses. There are prism lenses that we could put in the glass to eliminate the double vision. In other cases, if it is a more severe misalignment of the eye, we can then recommend eye muscle surgery. And eye muscle surgery can reposition the alignment of the eyes, eliminate the child's double vision, and give that child a much better chance of being able to read more effectively and also have better depth perception. Poor tracking or the poor ability to move the eyes from left to right in a reading pattern is also very common with optic nerve hypoplasia. This is one of the leading causes as to why children with optic nerve hypoplasia and decent visual acuity may not be able to read. For these kids, there are different types of exercises that we could give parents and teachers to do with a child so the child could learn to move the eyes from left to right. I encourage parents and teachers to allow the child to use his or her finger as they are moving their eyes from left to right in a reading pattern. For younger children, we will begin to develop this tracking at an earlier age by using the iPad. The Apple iPad has many different types of applications that you can use, and these applications can help a child to move the eyes from left to right in a reading pattern. At the present time, uh, Sue Parker and her staff and uh, myself and my staff at the Center for the Parks Decided, um, we are working on putting together a manual of how to use the iPad and in what sequence should you use different applications. So when we get that finished uh, later this year, we'll share that with all of you. So those are some of the main types of visual problems that the child with optic nerve hypoplasia will have. And the good thing is that there are many different types of treatments that can enhance what the child sees. As I stated before, there are many different types of glasses that low vision optometrists and low vision ophthalmologists can prescribe. There are glasses that have a small telescope built into the lens that will allow a child to see the chalkboard or to see distant objects. I have two patients that are using telescopic glasses so that they could drive an automobile. In most states in the United States, a person is entitled 
to take the driver's test and demonstrate their ability to drive a car safely with the telescopic glasses. We also see that tinted lenses and sunglasses and lenses of prisms can be very helpful for children with low vision. And we also now know that there's a tremendous amount of assistive technology, video magnifiers, portable video magnifiers, all of these types of scanning technology are available to enhance a child's ability to use their vision to read and to write. I was just at the Cal State Northridge Conference, Disability Conference in San Diego, and I was very, very impressed with the latest desktop video magnifier. It is made by Optilec, and it is called the Clear View Speech. And this is a really nice video magnifier that will have a lot of benefit for children and adults with optic nerve hypoplasia because, first of all, it does have the ability to magnify the images on the screen up to 95 times. Not that we would ever need 95 times magnification, but it can do that. The monitor itself, you can move it closer and farther from the person. So the person using the machine can find the best distance that their vision is the sharpest. And you also can change the colors of the background and the text, just like with all other video magnifiers. But the real unique feature about this machine is that you can then press the touch screen, so the monitor itself is a touch screen. You could touch the screen, and it will tell you to move the page into the outlined area on the screen. And then you touch the screen again, and it will scan it, and it will read it out loud. Now, this is the only video magnifier that I have seen that has such high sophistication with being able to read text. It's able to read columns in the Wall Street Journal. It scans an entire 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. It will scan an entire page in a textbook. And it also will save what you have scanned. So that could be very, very helpful. Another thing that I've seen at the conference this year is something that was called the Smart Brailler, made by Perkins. And this is a device that would be very helpful for children and adults who are learning to read and write Braille. It has verbal feedback, so you will know if you have typed the incorrect letter. One of the things it has is a program where it will tell you to type a particular letter using the Braille keyboard and to emboss it on the paper. And it will tell you type B, type G, type H. And if you make a, ma a mistake with it, it will say try again. So you can actually learn the Braille alphabet by yourself with this device. And it is something that is very, very helpful. I know that I wish that this was available uh, three years ago when I was learning the alphabet itself. But that particular device, the Smart Brailler by Perkins, I believe that was for um, $1,995, and it's a very durable piece of equipment, like many of you will know with the Perkins Braillers. And the video magnifier that I was talking about by Optilec, that was $3,600. Ooh. And that has a 24-inch screen. But also what's even better yet about that, if you are a person who has a old Optilec Clearview magnifier, you could then just call them and they will do an upgrade to that and 
they could incorporate that type of speech output. So I do recommend that many children who do have optic nerve hypoplasia, I feel that many of them will really benefit also from learning Braille. I know that earlier when I was an eye doctor only and not a person who was a Braille reader, I used to think that with all the new technology, children really don't need to read Braille. But now that I am a person who is blind, and when I was partially sighted, I do understand the importance of Braille. Number one, it teaches children literacy. A child who simply scans something and listens to it will never really learn how to spell words. They will not understand the concepts of decoding words. They will not understand different aspects of putting together language. And I have seen that personally as as a doctor, that many of the children who read Braille, even when they have vision, the children who have vision but read Braille, I find that their language skills, their spelling skills, their grammar is really very, very high as compared to others who do not read Braille. So I feel that there's a lot of benefit of children learning Braille, and it's important to bring this up with your teacher for the visually impaired. The other thing I want to do before we wrap it up here for some questions is I also want to bring up a point that I learned from Dr. Borchard, and that is that optic nerve hypoplasia is not, it is not an isolated eye condition. Many people think that optic nerve hypoplasia only affects the eyes, but in reality, it often affects many other parts of a child's development. Many children with optic nerve hypoplasia have hormonal problems, and they should be seen by an endocrinologist to check to see if the child has the proper hormones. I have many patients with optic nerve hypoplasia who are on growth hormones, and after they have been administered growth hormones, they really began to develop and perform much, much better. Number two, I find that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia have motor problems. They often do not control and coordinate their fingers very well. Printing and drawing and buttoning buttons and zipping up zippers, these types of tasks that involve the use of the fingers is often very difficult for the child with optic nerve hypoplasia, and I always recommend that they have a consultation with an occupational therapist if I'm observing some of these types of difficulties. And we're also seeing that there are many children with optic nerve hypoplasia that have delayed speech. Their speech is delayed, or often it's difficult for them to understand what people are saying to them. We see that some kids, perhaps because of their speech delays, that their social interaction, they may prefer to be more so by themselves. And so these are kids who should be seen by speech therapists and perhaps a developmental pediatrician to take a look at all of these components. So the child who does have optic nerve hypoplasia should be evaluated for many of these other considerations so that we can make certain that they do receive the proper intervention at a, at a very, very early age. So overall, even though optic neuropyphoplasia is something that we are seeing more frequently, 
I have personally seen that the children with optic nerve hypoplasia are making very strong developmental gains. These are kids who are benefiting from the treatment of all the different doctors and therapists, and as long as that we provide them with that type of intervention, I think that they're going to do very, very well. So at this time, we're going to open it up to questions, and I'm going to, again, remind all of you that this podcast is being recorded by Airs LA, and it will be available on the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org. And also, I'd like to thank Mr. Dick Burden for recording this evening, and it will also be up at the Airs LA website at www.airsla.org. And if you bear with us just for one moment before any of you hang up so that we can get a clear recording, um, also I encourage all of you to communicate with Dr. Mark Borchard. I'm sorry that he wasn't able to attend tonight, but he may have had an emergency surgery. Uh, So you may contact Dr. Mark Borchard, and he is at the Vision Center at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. Sue, do you have a contact uh, a web page for Dr. Borchard? I have an office number for um, Dr. Borchard. And, again, I want to thank you all for listening tonight. Uh, we got such great information from you, Dr. B- Dr. Bill, so it was great. I'm so glad you were with us. Um, the the uh, number for the Vision Center is area code 323-361-2347. Um, and that is the Vision Center number, and I'm sure that they can direct you to Dr. Borchardt's office uh, or to um, get leaving a message to for Dr. Borchardt if you wish. Thank okay, you. one more time, please, Sue, for that number. It's, yes, 323-361-2347. Okay, great. And that great. is the number for the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Okay, great. Thank you, Sue. And also, mm-hmm. just want to make a reminder that next month we're going to be on hiatus. We will not have a lecture next month, but we will in the following month, and we'll send out that information. So we have about three minutes for questions. Does anybody have a question that uh, they'd like to ask? If you have a question, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six and ask the question. Thank you. I have a question regarding autism and ONH. Can when you were talking about the social skills deficits and well, not necessarily a deficit, but uh, and the speech delays, would that could that look like autism in some kiddos? Yes, that is one of the things that Dr. Borchert had shared with me is that many children they will show characteristics that are similar to autism in the sense that. Some may have a speech delay, and others may have some differences in their social skills. So it's a good idea to have them to be evaluated perhaps by a developmental pediatrician or by a speech-language pathologist so that we could provide that intervention. Another question? My name is Heather Gimiteo, and I actually have the same question um, as she did, and thank you for answering Okay, great. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, too, Heather. Another question? Yeah, I have a question. Simon Page, Frederick, Maryland. Um, Our two-year-old son who has ONH and SOD, he has sleep problems in as much that, apart from being two, he likes to stay up all night, and then this is detrimental to his performance the following day 
many children with optic nerve hypoplasia may have sleep disorders. And sometimes when a child has a reverse cycle where they sleep during the day and they're awake at night, many times that their pediatricians may recommend a supplement such as a melatonin. But before doing that, I would also have a, a detailed evaluation by an endocrinologist to take a look at the different systems within the endocrine system and also different hormones. Is there another question? We'll take one more question. Dr. Bell, I have a student with optic nerve hypoplasia, and the student's very actually defensive. Um, is, is that common with students with this um, visual impairment? Yes, the question is about our children with vision impairment, are they often tactile defensive? They don't like to be touched. They don't like to touch things of different texture. And, yes, we do see that very, very often among children with vision impairment as well as with optic nerve hypoplasia. So for many of these children who do have that type of tactile defensiveness, we often will recommend different types of massaging techniques. And we also encourage families to consult with an occupational therapist who is trained in sensory integration. So that is something that could be also very, very helpful. So I want to thank all of you again for your, your patience and for attending this evening. I think this is probably one of the largest groups that we've had. Yes. So we yes. really, really appreciate it very much. And, Sue, when do you know what is our next topic that we're having in May? Yes, our next topic will actually be um, Ask Dr. Bill. Actually, it's a good chance to be able to kind of do a grand rounds of pediatric eye conditions. Um, we'll be discussing albinism, aniridia, coloboma, different kind of pediatric eye conditions that we see are prevalent. And it will give you a chance to kind of ask Dr. Bill any specific questions you might have about um, your children you might be um, working with or your own child. And that will be May 14th. Okay, great. Well, again, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mr. Burden, for recording this, and we'll see all of you hopefully on May 14th.